Well, what is God really like? That's the question we looked at uh, last week as we began, got into this uh, this, this amazing part of Exodus. Uh, But this week, as we look at this passage, uh, I want to think about a different question. It's similar, but a little bit different. Can we really trust God? Can we really trust Him? Uh, Like last week, that might seem like a very simple question, and yet the truth is it's not uh, always easy to answer that question, is it? Can we really trust God? Um, In our culture, lots of people today are um, very suspicious of authority. They're very suspicious of institutions for very good reasons. Uh, Banks, the police, uh, politicians... Uh, Many people feel let down, don't they, by uh, people like that for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Political leaders make promises to get elected. And then the moment they're in power, they break those promises. Uh, When you and I are are online, when we're watching a a clip of somebody speaking, the, the questions we now have to ask are, is that real? Is that a deep fake? Is that true? And even in the church... There have been so many scandals in, in recent years, so many times that leaders that people once trusted have been shown to be living a double life or have used their power to put other people down, that many people are understandably wary of trusting leaders at all. Or maybe tonight it's a lot more personal than that. Maybe you know what it is like to be so let down by somebody close to you that now trust, even the idea of trusting, is a very big issue for you. Uh, Because of something that's happened to you, you feel understandably that that you need to keep people at arm's length. And maybe you know people like that. Maybe you want to help people like that. I think the issue of trust is a really big issue in our culture. And the thing about trust is when it's lost, it's very hard to get back, isn't it? There's the nagging thought, isn't there? Will that person, will they do that again? And often you and I, we assume we we can think that in the end, God, well, God will just be like everybody else. There are many people who who find it hard to trust God for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Jude is a really stunning little letter in the, the New Testament. Near the end, Jude says this. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Have compassion when people have questions. Don't just dismiss people like that. Try to help them. Now, maybe this evening in in St. Peter's tonight, you feel very, very secure in your relationship with God. Even if you do, then I hope this passage, what God has to say to us, I think, in this passage will help you, and it will maybe even help you help others. What are these verses? What is this pretty familiar story if we know our Bibles? What is it all about? If you want a summary, in a sense, it's this. Moses is trying to get out of something that God is calling him to do. And God is just reassuring him over and over in lots of different ways that he actually can trust him. 
Um, a man with all kinds of doubts and questions, he is learning how and why he can trust God. And so as we jump into this, converse, uh, this conversation, there's four things this evening that I want to try and show you. Uh, four things that God reveals here to try to get Moses' trust, to try to get our trust. Here's the first thing, verses 13 to 15, God reveals his name, his name. Now, when you're on the phone and you're, um, I don't know, and it's a rainy Wednesday afternoon, you're trying to sort out insurance or uh, something to do with your car or something like that, you're on the phone, what do people on uh, the other end of the phone often do? They'll say, good afternoon, Mr. Lind, you know, you're speaking to Lucinda, how may I help you? Uh, Lucinda gives you her name because Lucinda knows uh, that's how you build a relationship, isn't it? You have no idea what she looks like, but she knows she's trying to build trust uh, with you, isn't she? She shares her name. Her name might not even be Lucinda, but she's chosen that name because it sounds sort of trustworthy. I don't know. Well, in verse 13, Moses, he imagines a scenario, and he says, what if I go to your people and I tell them that, you know, you've sent me, and they ask to know your name. What should I say? Now, just think about that question. I, I was thinking about it this week. I, I wonder if uh, maybe at first it seems, or I thought it was a bit of a strange question. If Moses is, is nervous about doing what God is calling him to do, wouldn't you be more, wouldn't you expect him to be more concerned about his name, his identity? Given he's failed to, to deliver God's people in chapter 2, wouldn't you think he'd be anticipating being asked, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Instead, it's a different question, isn't it? Now, Alec Mateer, great Old Testament scholar, he, he points out that in the Bible, names tell stories. Names tell stories. That's so true, isn't it? Think of all so many of the, the famous characters in their Bible. Their name kind of summed them up. And I think, in a sense, what Moses is anticipating is, is kind of being asked a similar question to the one we thought about last week. When they ask about a name, they're really asking, what is God like? And the answer comes in verse 14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. Now, last week I said in this section of Scripture, what's happening, I think, is that Moses, he's being confronted with the godness of God. And I think the difficulty is that when you and I, when we think about God, we tend to either think he's a bigger version of us, or we only think about God in reference to what he does for us. We think about his work, what he does for us in creation, redemption, uh, so on. There's so much we can learn about God from these things. What God does, does reveal something of himself. But this verse, verse 14, that is speaking about something really different. This verse, I am who I am, it is talking about who God is in himself. 
And you and I, we don't think about that very much. Last week we saw in, in the fire, in, in, in the burning bush in the fire, God is a God who is self-existent. Nothing caused God. God is totally independent. God is self-sufficient. And this verse, verse 14, it points to that too. God is who God is. Listen to uh, the theologian Scott Swain. Listen to what he says. God is without any aid. God is identical only with himself. I am who I am. God is comparable only with himself. God is incapable of being named or defined with reference to broader categories or classifications of being. I am who I am. God is eternal. God is unchanging. What does God say in Isaiah? To whom then will you compare me? The answer? Nobody. There is no one like God. Now, I think this is, this is really rich theology, isn't it? I think it's hard to get our heads around, and I think that's a good thing. And yet, I think it's actually very pastoral. You see, trust, trust breaks down, doesn't it, when we feel somebody has changed. Something happens between two people, a relationship, whatever kind of relationship it is, and then one of those people feels like things are just, they're never going to be the same again. But what we have here in, in Exodus is a God who will never change. Look at verse 15. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered through all generations. Friends, God is utterly consistent. God is not blown around by circumstances. Those circumstances include our sins, our suffering, our mistakes. God is not shaken by the problems in this world. None of these things changes who God is. He is God. What did you learn at church this evening? God is God. And yet it's totally fundamental, isn't it? He is who he is. What does James say? He doesn't change like shifting shadows. And yet the staggering thing is thinking about Jesus here. Because Jesus knew this passage, didn't he? He took words, these words, I am, on his lips throughout John's gospel. The I am sayings, that I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. And yet there's an eighth I am saying, isn't there? In John 8, before well, what does Jesus say? He says, before Abraham was, I am. That's why people tried to kill Jesus, isn't it? They, they recognize the magnitude of what he was saying. Some of them recognized and they saw that the God of the Exodus was standing right in front of them. I am the eternal one, Jesus said. So when people come to you and they say, they say, Jesus... You know, Jesus, all he ever claimed to be was a good teacher. If you think that this evening, 
Well, don't walk away from the Christian faith until you've wrestled with that. He is who he is. He is the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His name. But there's a second thing. As uh, God tries to kind of win Moses' trust here, he doesn't just talk about his name. He talks about his plan, verses 16 to 22, his plan. One of the things that happens uh, when trust breaks down between people is that the, the future, it starts to feel very uncertain, doesn't it? Two people make promises to one another. And of course, when they do that, uh, they never know what the future is going to hold, do they? But if one of those people breaks that covenant, then the future for the other person, it feels unknown, doesn't it? The life he or she thought they would have, it's now in doubt. It's changed. And as God instructs Moses in these verses, he makes it so clear that he knows the future. He knows what will happen ahead of time. He has a plan. His plan is certain. This is one of the great comforts to Christians, isn't it? A few years ago, a, a theological movement called um, Open Theism uh, became prominent. It, like all kind of modern uh, theological mistakes, it was based on an older heresy. And uh, Open Theism, what it was, was it was an attempt to try and defend the idea that we have free choice, we have free will as people. And put really crudely, part of the teaching was that in this movement was that God doesn't really know how human beings will respond to him. That in a sense, everything is kind of up for grabs. Well, that's not the picture here, is it? In verse 16, God tells Moses to gather the elders, tell them I've appeared to you, tell them I've seen all that's happened to them. I promise, verse 17, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. God's plan is clear, and God's plan is good. Look what he promises for his own, a land flowing with milk and honey, verse 17. So God is saying, I'm going to get my people out of this horrible situation they're in, but I'm not just going to do that. No, I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to give them something so much better. That's what God is like. God loves to take people out of a pit. And when God does that, he often gives them satisfaction, joy, things they could never have dreamed of, a new life, a new start, something to cover over all the pain in their past. God tells Moses in advance what's going to happen. In verse 18, he says, when you go to them, they will listen. God's plan is certain. God's plan is good. God's plan is comprehensive. God has thought of everything, verse 18. Look at that verse. Moses is told to say to Pharaoh, let us go to worship in the wilderness for three days. He's told to go to Pharaoh and make that request, three days. Now, uh, one author says that, that when Moses does this, when he makes this kind of relatively small request, you know, let us go, let us go and worship. God knows that the king will reveal what he's really like. 
God knows the king will respond harshly to that. He knows his character. God knows he won't allow that small thing, and that will tell you everything about him. And people are like that, aren't they, sometimes? God knows this will happen. God makes it really clear. He will not let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. So God's plan, God's knowledge of this situation, it's comprehensive. God knows how everyone is going to react in this set of circumstances. God is able to predict it all ahead of time. And what does this teach us? It teaches us God knows the end from the beginning. God knows all the, ma- the macro stuff in the universe, doesn't he? And yet God knows all the micro stuff. He knows all the little details. God was right there when you were born. God was right there. And God will be right there when you die. And God knows that in that moment when you die, you'll see him. Now this foreknowledge, it's just one of the ways that God is, one of the many ways God is so different to us, isn't he? You and I, we don't have that kind of insight. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if Scotland beat South Africa. Don't, I'm not looking at anybody. But God's plan is certain. God's plan is good. God's plan is comprehensive. God knows absolutely everything. And when it comes to God's plans, God has the power to make it happen. Look at the references to his hand in verse 19 and 20. God will do wonders. And look at the way God says the Israelites will leave Egypt. God says they'll plunder the Egyptians when they go. God is promising total victory in advance. God is telling us ahead of time, I will win, you will win. This is the same God you and I meet in Revelation. This is the God who has promised, who said ahead of time, I will deliver my people. I will destroy the devil. Do we believe that? This is the God who will bring a new creation. We can trust him. And yet God knows that you and I, we often doubt these things. That takes us to the third point tonight. We don't just see here God, his, his name. We don't just see his plan. In verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4, we see his signs, his name, his plan, his signs, verses 1 to 9. Now, in these verses, God, God meets Moses' doubts, and he does so with three different signs. He sees two of those signs, the snake and the leprosy. But he has to trust God for the third sign, for the blood. And Moses is told to throw his, his staff to the ground. It becomes a snake. He does so. Uh, and it happens. It must have been terrifying, wasn't it? Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, he points out that when he's told to pick up the snake, he does that. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? He, he says his timid mind was capable of great courage. 
His timid mind was capable of great courage. Lots of God's people are like that, aren't they? Lots of God's people have great doubts, they have fears, and yet God tells them to do something and they do it. They're a bit of a mixture. They're a bit of a mixture of faith and doubt. But I wonder if you can see with me, if you look, the reason for this sign, verse 5. It's not here to make everybody gasp. It's not like some kind of conjuring trick, this snake. It's designed to authenticate God's messenger. God is saying, Moses, I'm going to give you this sign. And I'm going to give it to you so that they will believe I appeared to you. So they will trust you. And so they will trust me. But the snake's not the only sign, is it? Verse 6, God tells him to put his hand inside his cloak. When he takes it out, it's leprous. When he puts it back, it's healed. Now, why did God choose these signs? God could have, I don't know, God could have said to Moses, if you point in the sky, you know, like a lightning bolt will come down, then they'll believe. Well, all the scholars, uh, they point out that snakes were very common in Egypt. Uh, The kings of Egypt, they wore these amazing cobra crowns. Uh, The people of Egypt, they they, they worshipped the god Ray, who who was associated with the cobra. God is showing his power over these things, isn't he? God wants a, a trembling people to tremble before him. And lepers were common in Egypt. And leprosy was a devastating disease. It was basically a death sentence, wasn't it? And yet God has power over that disease. But I think we see his power most clearly in the third sign, verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, look what he's told to do. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and the water will become blood. Now, Jesus turned water into wine, didn't he? Moses is going to turn water into blood. And again, it could have been any water, couldn't it? But God's choice of the Nile, God's choice of the Nile here is completely deliberate. It's often said, if you wanted to sum up uh, Egypt, I guess, in two words, you you could just say the Nile. Um, It was the source of trade. It was the source of life. The two places, Egypt, the Nile, they were kind of synonymous. Egypt really was the Nile. And the Nile was considered sacred. Someone put it this way, the river was the father of life, the mother of all. Um, lots of people at, at the time uh, believed that, that the River Nile was the kind of uh, embodiment, if you like, of, of one of the gods they worshipped, the god Happy, H-A-P-I. And so the meaning of this sign is really clear, isn't it? Moses, I want my people to know through you that I am totally in charge. I want you to reassure my people I want them to feel and see with their own eyes my sovereignty. I want to reassure them. 
Now, I wonder if you know that God is like that. God loves to do that. Some of us doubt that. Some of us think God is hard and unkind. Some of us have been trained into patterns of thinking about God that are false distortions. But tonight, I want you to see three things. I've not got a snake. I want you to see three things up here that are designed to reassure you. One of them is in front of me. One of them is behind me, and one of them is to my left. This lectern, the Bible on it, more importantly, the table behind me, that font. See, God, is, God often brings us reassurance, doesn't he, in, in unexpected ways. Maybe there might be one or two times in our life where we really feel there's a kind of miraculous sense. God has given us, I don't know, a verse from loads and loads of different people. We've had one really big conversation with someone that has really shaped or helped us. We've got to test those things, haven't we, against what God says. But God always reassures us through these signs. These are means of His grace. These are ordinary things. And yet, these ordinary things are really special. God has given us a word we can hear. And yet, God has also given us a word we can taste and see and feel. God has given us Scripture to reassure us. God has also given us bread and wine and water. And these things, these are means of grace. These things are designed to feed our faith as Christians. These are here to help us when we doubt, reassure us. How many more times will you take the Lord's Supper? When will be the last time? Will it be the next time? Well, one day you and I, we will take it for the last time, won't we? And then the next time will be, well, we'll be with Jesus. We'll feast with him. We doubt God loves to reassure us. His name, his plan, his signs. Lastly, verses 10 to 17, his helper, his helper. Now, I love the greatest TV program of all time, The West Wing. I've watched The West Wing like 500 times or something. In The West Wing, the president is played by the magnificent Martin Sheen. And there, there's one... Uh, episode where he's in a press conference with an with a amazing number of reporters. He's just told them something. I won't tell you what it is. And then they pepper him with questions, follow-up questions, all kinds of things. Verse 10 is a bit like that. Moses is, is basically saying, Mr. President, are you aware of the following? Look at his feelings of, of inadequacy. I'm an un, unimpressive speaker. I'm not the man you want. Look at God's response. I made the mouth. Moses, I'm the one with the authority here. I'm the one who will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. What we have here is a massive sense of inadequacy that is met with massive reassurance. And yet Moses still feels afraid. It's so human, isn't it? His knees are knocking. Oh, please send someone else. It's so human, isn't it? 
And this makes God angry, doesn't it? He, he's made it also clear. Moses has been given great reassurance. He, God, has decided that this man is going to be the man he's going to use. And yet he's still trying to wriggle out of it, isn't he? And yet, can you see God's kindness here? Aaron, look at verse 14. Is there not Aaron? Behold, he's coming out to meet you. I mentioned Calvin earlier. One of the things Calvin articulates really well is the way that God accommodates to our weakness. God knows our frailty. God knows our sin. You and I, we are creatures. He's God. We're creatures. And so God has chosen to speak to us through Scripture. God uses language that you and I can understand. And he does that to speak about his very self. In a sense, he's doing that here. He accommodates to Moses' weakness by giving him a helper, by giving him a right-hand man. God is gracious. In his kindness, he gives his help. And so often God gives help to his children through other people, doesn't he? God's people are God's gift to God's people. Wonder is God calling you to do something uh, that feels impossible? Well, you're not alone. Share that burden with somebody. Help somebody. We're just getting started in this book. There's so much left to see. But can you see that before God rescues his people from Egypt, God is preparing Moses. God is preparing this deliverer. The things that happen to Moses in these early chapters are things that will happen to them. Rescue through water. Invisible signs and wonders. Hearing God's voice. His story, Moses' story, is going to become... Israel's story. And friends, tonight, some of you are going through agony. Some of you are going through loss and grief and circumstances that have just left you bewildered. Some of you this evening are barely holding on. Well, this passage will not erase all that pain, will it? But I hope, I hope this passage, I hope it will help you keep going for one more week. See, Sunday to Sunday, that's the Christian life, isn't it? And as we see Moses turn back to Egypt as he begins that journey, we'll see that next week. God calls you and I, he calls us to keep walking. God calls us to keep walking by faith. You and I, we're pilgrims, we're making painful progress, slow progress, and yet one day we will reach the heavenly city. Last week I ended looking at a great chapter, Romans 8. I mentioned just one phrase from Romans 8, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Moses learned that, didn't he? But I want you to come with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, another amazing chapter as we close. Look at Hebrews 11 and look at verse 23. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And here's the reason they did that. And they were not afraid. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Fast forward to verse 27. By faith, Moses left Egypt not being afraid. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. And so who is Moses? Moses is a man with fearless parents. Moses is a man who at the beginning of his life, his mom and dad, his parents, they put their faith in God. And 80 years later, 80 years later, he does the same, doesn't he? He has that faith, that trust. He refuses to give in to fear. And though he trembled, God helped him to trust. And friends, the same will be true of you and me. The same will be true of us. Though we struggle, though we fail, though we feel so weak, God is with us. God will help us. And he will be our guide. He will be our friend. He will be with us even to the end. Well, let's pray together.